Jesus, Peter, James, and John hike down the mountain after the transfiguration. The other nine disciples are left at the base of the mountain and feel a responsibility to continue kingdom work with the crowds while Jesus is away. Are they doing better than Aaron and the Israelites while Moses was away? Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Aiken. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus finds some private time to teach his disciples some important things. We're going to start in Mark 9, verses 14 to 16. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So the other disciples are trying to exercise a demon out of this boy without Jesus. I would assume they might have some experience with this when they were sent out two by two. But it's not clear that this is just the other nine apostles. It could be the larger group of disciples. But either way, I love that instead of making a golden calf and moving on from Jesus while he's on the mountaintop, they're instead trying to continue his work, to be the hands and feet of Jesus while he's gone. This is what the church is supposed to be. Also, we aren't very good at it. People are people and we mess things up and sometimes we're successful at living out Jesus' love and power, and other times it just goes like this. Division. Arguments. Mark 9, 19. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Sit with that reply for a minute. Faithless generation. How long will I be with you? How long must I bear you? Bring him to me. Well, who's he talking to? At the end, he's definitely making a request to the people seeking a miracle. But is he talking to them the whole time? I do think so. It says that he answered them, meaning those who told Jesus they were disappointed in his disciples. Faithless wearing Jesus out, but he's willing and interested in delivering the child. I've read this passage many times and thought the disciples failed, which is trusting the testimony of the dividers. However, Jesus is calling the exorcism seekers faithless, and it's emphasized further in the next part. Mark 9, 20-24 
And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It is often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This demon or unclean spirit is ruthless. It's a very bad situation and Jesus recognizes that immediately and with mercy and compassion moves swiftly first asking how long the child has faced the trauma. And the father of the boy asked Jesus if he's able to help him. Are you able? Which is a sign of disbelief. If I can, of course I can't. Do you believe? You remember the back in the villages where Jesus couldn't perform any miracles because there was no faith? Well, this man's dangerously close to that same situation. And I think if we're honest, we can identify with this man most days. We want to believe in God's power. We want to trust in Jesus' help, but we're double-minded because everything around us tells us we're foolish to think these things. We believe it in our heads, but not in our hearts. And Jesus doesn't work miracles in such people, and neither do his disciples. The desperate father cries out, help me overcome my disbelief. May that be the cry of our hearts. I do believe, Lord, in my head. Help me overcome that disbelief in my heart. It's a matter of trust. And then and only then is the Lord free to work. Mark 9, 25 to 27. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, It came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So Jesus frees this boy of the evil spirit because of the power of faith, and it's a permanent deliverance too, never to enter the boy again. But the violent exorcism left the boy in a state of death. Either he looked dead and Jesus woke him up, Or he did die, and Jesus raised him to life. He can do that, you know? If that wasn't wild enough, the second twist is coming. Look at the next verse. Mark 9, 28-29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The disciples had been faithful to the kingdom mission while Jesus was away on the mountaintop. They were faithful, but not successful. It happens. They couldn't have done any miracles if the people they were serving were faithless or if the disciples were faithless. They asked Jesus about this because it doesn't seem clear to them what happened. Was their technique bad? He says, evil spirits can only be removed by prayer. Okay, but if we look back, is that how Jesus got rid of it? Did he pray? It doesn't appear so. 
But what is prayer? Prayer is communicating to God in trust with our pleas and our praises. And in the case of our pleas, we trust in the power of God. They couldn't remove the spirit because the requesters were not truly praying until Jesus arrived. They wanted magic. When Jesus says this kind of spirit, he doesn't mean there are different kinds of evil spirits necessarily, and they're exercised in different ways, and we need to make manuals that line up the deliverance patterns for the different types. He simply refers to this kind as evil spirits themselves, all of them as a whole. All evil spirits are overcome by our faith in God. Now, Jesus and his followers were moved through Galilee as he repairs for the end of his ministry. And he'll share with them about the resurrection again. Mark 9, 30 to 32. And they went from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. And they were afraid to ask him. From Mount Horeb to Galilee is a long walk. And through Galilee is even further. It's a really long way to walk when you're trying not to be seen. Because you're privately teaching your disciples. His message right now is a secret. He knows he will die and that he will rise. And that this is how he will accomplish God's mission. And like the three disciples on the hike down the mountain, they don't understand him. It's not cryptic, though. It's not a parable. It's straight facts. But they don't know what shelf to put it on in their brains. I picture all the information we get requiring a shelf to put it in in our heads. When we get information that we don't have a shelf for, we forget it really fast. Like when we get directions about how to do a task but we've never heard of the task before or any of its applications or its context. There's no shelf, nowhere for that info to go to be made sense of or to be accessed again. His followers have a shelf for the Messiah and on it is expectations about the kingdom, his reign, his conquering, his miracles. But they hear about death and resurrection and they don't know it's supposed to go on the Messiah shelf. It has no categories, no framework, no expectations. It doesn't make sense. Mark and Luke tell us the disciples are afraid to ask Jesus about it. In fact, Matthew tells us the disciples are deeply grieved. Jesus' words of victory, rising from the dead, are overshadowed by the fact that to rise again, one has to die. And if they understand, they're devastated. And if they don't, they're left with embarrassing confusion. Jesus is fulfilling prophecies left and right. He walks the narrow road before him to a cross on a journey to save the world. So does such a man take time for tax season? We now go to Matthew 17, 24 to 25a. When they came to Capernaum, The tax collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. So who are these tax collectors? Two drachmas is the equivalent of two days wages. So this isn't the Romans. This is coming from the Jews. It was a taxation for upkeep of the temple. 
And this started back in the time of Moses and was reinstituted when the temple was rebuilt after the Babylonian and Persian exiles. It wasn't a man-made tradition like many of the things they were practicing. Jesus hasn't paid his temple tax for the year, and Peter apparently hasn't either. It's hard to pay your taxes when you quit your job to follow Jesus. Peter is approached on behalf of Jesus, so maybe he's successful at hiding on this trip like was his goal. But I doubt the temple tax is hinging on two poor guys, two drachmas, but they would love to catch Jesus breaking a law. Peter knows this and he says, yeah, my master does pay it. And then Jesus seeks out Peter in the house to tell him how it will happen. Matthew 17, 25b. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Kings don't pay taxes for themselves. Neither do their sons, the throne's heirs. And Peter knows this and he answers Jesus, taxes come from others. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give an offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is so cool. And so it feels just random, but it's an amazing miracle. So first, Jesus is David's heir, King David. So that makes him technically immune to the tax. However, he's willing to pay it anyway. So should we pay our taxes too? It seems so. Taxes hurt in the moment, but they typically help others. Let's pay it, Peter. Go fish. Find the money for us both. Jesus doesn't say he'll find a shekel, though. That's a bad translation. He says you'll find a stator, which was a silver coin worth exactly four drachma, a perfect payment for two men. So how did the stator get in a fish in the Sea of Galilee? And how did Jesus know it was there? And how did he know Peter would catch it? Those are super fun questions, but I believe it all comes down to him being the creator and being able to create order where there is none. It's a miracle and the taxes are paid. And remember that long walk through Galilee to Capernaum? Lots of conversations were going on. Some were with Jesus about his death and resurrection, but some were without. Mark 9, 33 to 34. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I would keep that secret too. It could have just been the 12 apostles. It could have been the larger group of disciples, but they were wondering who among them would be the king's right hand. What was their current ranking? What was the consensus? Are Peter, James, and John in the top three now because of the mountain? Because when Jesus rose that girl from the dead, those are the three guys he brought into the room too. Are they in the lead? What do I need to do? Right here are the discussions. And Jesus decides to make something clear to the 12 who likely felt like they were closest to the throne. Verse 35 and 36. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, 
he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him up in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. If you want to be the greatest, you must become the least. And the kingdom of God is illustrated by Jesus taking and hugging a child. There must have been a child in the group, maybe one of the disciples' children. And in Jewish culture, and even in Roman culture, children were considered the least of all. So here Jesus hugs the least of all of them as a child, who was also a follower of Christ and a disciple. Not an apostle, but a disciple, a follower. Jesus says, he who welcomes the littlest, the least of the disciples welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes God. Now there's a grave effect here as well. The disciples don't understand that all of Jesus' suffering and death that he is foretelling will also have a grave effect on them. They will become the least by the service and the testimony of martyrdom. Luke adds Jesus' last line, For he who is the least among you all, he is the greatest. Jesus gives them a reason to serve others and to lower themselves. We're to lift up others and be self-sacrificing. It is the Christian opportunity. John, who was likely an instigator in the who's greatest conversation based on what we find out about him later, wastes an opportunity to learn a lesson about lowering yourself. Mark 9, 38 to 41. John said to him, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. John, you're not greater than my children who aren't following me in the same way as you. How can you be upset that another person is involved in removing evil in my name? That is being for us. You guys don't have a monopoly on the kingdom. This is a lesson from Jesus. To not shun Christians from other groups than yours and the way that you have chosen to follow him. When I was a young conservative Christian, I saw the fruit of the Spirit in women preachers, but I didn't have the theology to support it. I believe they shouldn't do it because of my reading of the scripture. But this passage opened my eyes to the need to not shun my sister in Christ for how she bears fruit and does good for Jesus. At the time, she believed different than me about her role, but how could I not support her? Now, I'm not young any longer, nor a conservative, and I have a whole different group of Christians that I would love to shun. I bet you know who they are. Some of them wear red hats and attack the Capitol. Some of them are just sitting next to me in church and say things like, God hates the gays and we need to hurt trans kids. Or they'll just subtly talk about the sexual revolution and how birth control was created simply by 
girls who wanted to have sex before marriage. And you just look at them and you're like, what? I can feel unsafe when they're around. When culture war swords are drawn and hate arises. But if I see any fruit in them, if I hear any message from them that is for Christ, even if it's a little bit, I should be for them in that. We have chosen far different paths of serving Jesus. But if they are sincere that they're following him, then they're my family. Family I don't trust and family I don't want to be around, but I'm not better than them. And I shouldn't shun them. I can see the gospel and your worldview don't seem to go together from my point of view. But if their gospel is still Jesus-centric, then they're family. If the gospel they preach is no longer Jesus saves, well, then that's a different story. They're not family. They're hopefully future family that will come around to the real Jesus. But no matter our subgroups, we are the same church. Jesus mentions giving people cups of water as being counted for a kingdom reward. Someone's counting. Not towards your worthiness of the kingdom because Jesus already disqualified all of us in the Sermon on the Mount. If we're getting into the kingdom, it's going to be by his strength and power alone. But what if you're faithful after the fact to the one who saves you? The Apostle Paul later describes a reward ceremony at a judgment seat with everyone entering into the kingdom through Jesus, but each receiving recognition for what they did in faith along the way. Now, we can twist this into a new law very quickly and become reward chasers, but reward chasing will end with the expected prize. You can't earn gifts. There's no reward for stacking chairs. If you're doing it to be noticed, there's no reward for handing out water. If you're doing it for your neighbor's praise, there's no reward for culturally dominating America to the law of God. If you're doing it with the wrong motives, and I can't imagine there are right ones. So catch this flow. Nobody's greater. You must become the least to become great. And then you'll be rewarded for your leastness. Chairs because people need seats and you love them. Water because people are thirsty and you love them. Living quietly and being a good neighbor because you love them. Unlike the reward system of the world, gifts and praise and blessings to the strong and the most famous, the ones who we've never heard of in the kingdom are the greatest. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. The least is the greatest. Serving other people for the good of those without condition will place you far higher in the kingdom than stepping on everyone around you and trying to be a dominant person. Also, Jesus says if you welcome him specifically, you welcome God who sent him. If we think of God in the garden as behind the flaming sword, or behind the veil, or across a chasm, unreachable and unable to be welcomed into your life without an instant death. Jesus is the man to welcome, as he's representing God in a way that we can see and understand and not die while processing. And finally, there are going to be days 
where our head is in it and our hearts are not. And it is part of a biblical worldview to say, Jesus, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will say Gehenna a bunch of times. In your modern translation, we'll say hell a bunch of times instead.